So starting today, from this Sunday until the end of October, so it's just the end of September, in that period of time, about eight weeks, we're going to take four of those Sundays, and my, myself and the rest of our pastor, most of our pastoral staff, we are going to be talking about some things that we feel are very important during the unique cultural moment that we find ourselves in. And we're, we're basically trying to say this. We want to we help you navigate um, the deep water of our current culture. That we want to help you navigate um, what's, what's going on in our, in, our, um, in our world. And so it was kind of hard. We really worked on trying to figure out what did we want to talk about because we wanted to talk about, we, I talked about to our staff for a long time, it was just a feeling I had. It wasn't like I'd say, oh, we're going to spend four weeks talking about evangelism or four weeks or six weeks talking about this or we're going to go through the book of Romans. No, it was like I have this feeling in my gut that we want to need to talk about some stuff and just very pastoral, saying as we interact with you, there's things that we're hearing and, and we're seeing what your people are wrestling with in our unique cultural moment that we find ourselves in. We'll talk about that as we go on but that we want from a very pastoral position of perspective, just talk about some real-life stuff for four of the weeks. And the reason I say four out of those weeks is we have some other stuff that's, that's going to be coming. We have a missionary one week, and we have a, a guest speaker one week for pastor appreciation. But, but four of those weeks, we're going to be talking about this stuff. And, and so um, for today, if we're talking about this unique culture, if sociologists are correct, and I believe they are on this, that we as a people in America right now are in this very interesting time in our culture regarding the religious lives of the people in the Western world. And what I mean by the Western world would be the United States, Europe, Canada, and Australia. That's pretty much the Western world. And if you don't understand this, we think and act and live differently than other parts of the world. Now, we're only a really a small portion of the whole world, but we're very different than the Asian mindset. And we lived in Asia. Um, you know, and so they literally live and think, they think different than we do. They've been raised different. You know, in fact, in Cambodia, you know how we tell um, stories to our kids to teach them morals? And we'll tell you, like, the, the, little, the little train that could, you know, and you can do it. They have a story about a fox who's wise and smart. And the reason he's wise and smart is because he steals from everybody. And that means he's good. He's wise and he's smart. So they teach their kids their whole life that to be like the wise fox because he steals from everybody and he gets their stuff. So they literally have a different mindset than we have. And so, but in the Western world, what we're finding today is that um, we have this very high percentage of our people who call themselves spiritual. They say, I'm a spiritual person. Yet at the same time, we have a shrinking number of people who identify as practicing Christians. And this is a huge shift in our Western world. For a very long time, I'll use the word, I don't know if it's a real word, Westernism has been associated with Christianity. Now that does not mean that every person in a Western world has truly been a follower of Jesus. But what it does mean is that those primarily in the Western world have been favorable to Christian, Judeo-Christian thinking and values. But now we are realizing that many in the Western world do not hold Christian thinking and values anymore. In fact, now it appears, it's apparent that many in the culture around us not only do not hold Christian values, 
but are actually opposed to Christian thinking. Many of our neighbors and our friends. Christian author and speaker and pastor, and if you want to follow a guy that is really a forward thinker, and I think he's right on, there's a guy named Mark Sayers. So Christian author Mark Sayers, and he does podcasts. Um, you want to, be, want to be amazed, look up the, a podcast called This Cultural Moment, um, where I get the, I'm using a term from that, where Mark Sayers and another guy, John Mark Comer, talk about culture. But, in, but Mark Sayers teaches that we are living in a cultural shift um, in our Christian society from being a Christian society to a post-Christian society. And he would even say this, that the shift has already happened. And I would say this, I think it has completely happened in much of the Western world, and it's happened on the coasts of America. I'm not sure it's completely happening yet, happened, completed in the Midwest. I'm not, I'm not sure, because culture shifts over time, right? But, but anyways, we're in this cultural shift. And one of the things that he points out about the shift is that, that the post-Christian society, which we find ourselves in, does not just walk away from its Christian roots. But rather, it, because it's leaving Christianity, it deconstructs or tries to tear down its Christian roots. And he explains it this way, and I think it's the best explanation that I've heard on, on what's happening in our society today. And you'll maybe go, that's what's happening. That the people um, in the post-Christian world, they want the kingdom without the king. And let me explain what, what he means by that. They want the things that the kingdom of God is responsible for. And whether you know it or not, so much of our Western culture, the things that we value about it are the results of Christianity. If you go to so many of our hospitals, you go to, what's their name? Saint, go to St. Go to Mary's. Why? That originally was started um, by Christian people. You go to the Methodist Hospital in Nashville. There's, there are hospitals, so much of what we do is started by Christian people. It's the real result of Christianity, Judeo-Christian thinking in our culture. So a lot of the foundational things that our current culture loves, things like um, valuing mercy and justice. Where do you think that comes from? You know where it doesn't come from? It doesn't come from the Muslim world. It doesn't come from the Asian world. It comes from the Christian world. Valuing mercy and justice. How about this, women's rights? Elevating women to equal par partners with men. That's a uniquely Christian thing. How about the, um, the uh, uh, idea of helping the poor and the underprivileged? Just read your Bible and from, from beginning to end, it's about helping the widow and the orphan and the underprivileged. It's a Judeo-Christian thing. It's a kingdom thing. How about stewarding the resources of the world? Christians are the champions, have been, and sometimes they've drifted, champions, should be champions of stewarding wisely the resources of the world because we've been given the responsibility by God to tend the garden, to manage the world. These are Christian things. These are things that are the results of, of, of Judeo and Christian thinking for thousands of years, Christian thinking for 2,000 years in our culture. But now culture wants those good things it wants to be, we're champions of mercy and rights, women's rights and helping the poor and underprivileged, but they want to do it all without the king of the kingdom. And the king of the kingdom is who? It's Jesus. They want it without King Jesus. So this is the culture that we find ourselves in. And if we have been alive for more than a couple of decades, 
And most of us in this place, many of us in this place, have been alive for more than a couple of decades. You are feeling something inside of you. You're seeing something happen. There's a shift happening, and you can't put your fingers on it, but there's a shift happening, and you, you just say this. It's just not like it was before. It's just something different. And, and that change can make us nervous, and it can make us scared, and it can make us uneasy. But I'll say this, if you've only lived a couple of decades, living in the shift is normal for you. You don't know anything else. And maybe if you're only a couple decades old, you hear people who are more than a couple decades old talking about the way it used to be and the good old days, which weren't really that good. They are only good for certain people. The good old days were good for some people. They weren't good for all people. But you talk about the good old days, and you just can't seem to get why they're always talking about the way it was, and it was so much better, and it was different. Well, the reason is, if you're younger, you've not lived on both sides of the shift. You've only lived on one side of the shift. And, and we're in this unique culture, a moment where some people who we've lived for a while, we've literally lived through the shift, or we're living through the shift. And so we've had one foot on this side of the shift, and we've experienced it, and on one foot, I'm going into this side of the ship, and we're saying, something's changing. Now, if you're raised on this side and born, that's all you've ever known and ever experienced. And so we have a culture that, that our, our younger people think this is normal. Our older people are going, but something's changing. And what is it? So why talk about this today? Why talk about the shift? Because as pastors of this church, we have so many conversations, and we hear so many concerns that, are, that, that we're that, that really, as we're talking to people, they're just about shifting culture. And we want to talk about some things regarding our Christian lives during the time of shift and do this. We want to give you hope because it's not all bad. We want to give you hope because God is still God and God is still every bit as much, as much a work of working among us as he ever has in any part, any time in your entire lives or any time in the history of the universe, God is still just, a moment, just, just working just as much. God is working on his eternal plan in ways that we often do not understand. But this we know. Because he's working, because he's in control, we can trust him. So if you've been living through the shift and you're feeling uneasy, you're on this side of the shift and you're saying, well, this is all I'm used to. This is normal. I'm used to walking on a moving boat. But if you're not used to that, what we want to have you understand is God's in control and we can trust him. But there are challenges, there are issues that are unique to this time and we need to wrestle through those things and understand those things of the times we're living in and that's what we want to help with. So for today, there's an issue. This has all been an introduction so far. Today, there's an issue that I want to deal with and hopefully help you live more happily, more stably in changing times. And this is what I want to talk about. That this particular thing, as Christians, how do we live among people whose views are so much different than ours? Because that's what we're finding. That wasn't the case in the past. As Christians, how do we live, how do we live well among people who have views that are so much different than our views? See, it often feels this way if you've lived through the shift on both sides of it, it often seems that what we had believed was right and we had believed was wrong is now turned upside down. 
What we had believed, always heard, it seemed like everybody believed this was right. And we still think this is right, but we're living in a culture where it says that's wrong. And there's a shift. And we've always said, this is wrong, you shouldn't do that. Now we live in a culture that's saying, oh yeah, that's right, you should do that. And you've lived through this, so we feel like it seems like that. You see, there was a day not that long ago in our culture, in the Western world, where most people seemed to agree about what was considered right and wrong. And whether they realized it or not, the reason they mostly agreed was because most people believed this. They believed that there was absolute truth in the world. And they believed that absolute truth was at least revealed in things like the Ten Commandments, which is kingdom thinking. That's why if you go to our, to our courts buildings and our public buildings that were built over on this side, you see the Ten Commandments displayed. You see them displayed saying, this is the foundation. This is our absolute truth. And people mostly, I'm not saying Christian people, I'm saying in the Christian culture, the westernized Christian world, most people believed in the absolute truth that it was wrong to lie, steal, murder, commit adultery, and covet. Those things that come out of the Ten Commandments. They pretty much as a culture, we believe those things. There was, there was great unity in what we believe to be right and wrong. But today, many people in our culture do not believe there's any absolute truth. Rather, this is what they believe, that truth is what any person believes to be true for themselves. So if I believe it's just fine for me to steal your car, or like the fox in Cambodia, steal your vegetables because I'm hungry, and that means you're wise. If I believe that to be true, then it's true. Because if it's true to me, it's truth. So as we live in this world with that kind of thinking, then any conversation that we have with somebody about right and wrong just becomes people talking about what is right and wrong in their opinions. There's no absolute truth coming from a source of authority. And we have a source of authority, the Bible. We say this is our source of authority, and it rules our lives. And we say, I don't know. See, And people would say, oh, yeah, this is, as I'm saying this, this is a culture that's affecting those people out there. If I had a dollar for every time I've sat with a Christian person in the church over the last 31 years as a pastor, and we've talked about a topic, and they say, well, pastor, I, I think, I believe. And I'll say, some of you in here, don't look at me. I said this to you. I don't care what you think. The Bible says. See, that's the cultural effect that's saying what's right to you is right to you just because you believe it. That's not understanding. There's an absolute truth. There's a standard that Christianity is built upon, and it's the Word of God. So it's not just outside the church, it's inside the church, it's our culture in a postmodern world. Now hold on to your seats for a minute, because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make you really maybe unhappy with me for a minute, okay? Just explaining something. Because this is going to blow some of your minds because there's a great difference between our culture and Christianity, and, and a lot of times we don't understand that, that the difference, that we're living more in the culture than in our Christian world. The reality of where this is stemmed from, this idea that there's no absolute truth and truth to me is what I believe, is the, is the outworking of a value that as a culture we are built upon, especially in America. 
and that you and I so often were taught to champion, and we love it, and we say, that defines who we are. It's rugged individualism. America was built on the concept of rugged individualism. You do what you want. Just be an individual. Do it your way. It's so highly valued in our culture. But rugged individualism only works, and I wish I would have looked it up, which founding father said, the democracy of America will only be great as long as its people are good, meaning they were godly. Was it Jefferson? I see Chris is mouthing, it's Thomas Jefferson. Thank you, Mrs. Principal. So that's the truth. This can only work, rugged individualism only works when the people are morally good and moral goodness comes from living based on an absolute truth. But our founding father said if we get away from the living on the absolute truth, rugged individualism will destroy what we have because what do we have? Everybody simply says, I'm going to do it my way. And that's the culture we're living in today. That's exactly where we find ourselves today. Where everybody you interact with, you, your neighbors, everybody's just saying this because it's culture and we have to, as Christians, we've got to be wise, we've got to think. Are we more affected by our culture than we are by the word of God? And our culture says, there's no absolute truth, just do it your own way. And then everybody does it their own way. So what does this have to do with, remember I said the topic was of interacting with people in your culture who are different to you. What does it have to do with interacting with your family or the people at work or the people at school or the people in your neighborhood? It has everything to do with it. You see, you can no longer just assume that others believe and hold values like you do. You just can't assume that. And we've got lazy and we believe that. And you can assume that others around you don't believe that truth is absolute and they most likely don't believe that the Bible or the church are sources of truth anymore. Therefore, when you're in discussion and having topics, talking about topics where you disagree about things like sexuality and education and politics and the environment, as a Christian, it does you no good to quote your Bible. But the Bible says, and you say, you're wrong because the Bible says, based on what they will say is your objective standard, the Bible. Because as a society, they don't believe in absolute truth, so they don't believe that the Bible is an objective standard, and they don't believe the truth to be what you think truth is. So how do we handle this? I really think, and I believe I'm lining up with the apostle, with Jesus and the apostle Paul, is the way we need, we need to think differently when we approach interacting with people than we have in the past. And when, the, as a whole, the culture was a Christian culture. Now, I mean, people are Christians, but we believed in Judeo-Christian ethics. Now, and I'm so, I'm, I talked to Pastor Paul about this morning, Susanna about this, I'm so cautious about saying what I want to say because it's literally the opposite of what's been taught for the last 20 years in our culture about, what I'm going to say is, what's been taught is, listen, it's, we shouldn't be so worried about who's in and who's out in the kingdom of God. That's been the, 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 the theological ground of the last 20 years. Like, that, just stop talking about that. But I think, according to scripture, we're going to look at it, we need in our minds to divide our worlds into two parts. We need in our minds to divide our world into two groups. Those who say they are followers of Jesus and those 
who are not followers of Jesus yet. doesn't mean we love one more than the other. We don't. It just means we have to understand, we have to relate different to one group than we do to the other group. And I really think we're at a place in our post-Christian society where we need to realize that these two groups cannot be dealt with the same way from us if we're followers of Jesus. And I say this, this really isn't a new thought because it's straight from Scripture. In the letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, and there's many places we can look at this, but I just want to look at this one concise example of this. When he wrote the letter to, to the people at Corinth, he's correcting them. Their church was out of control, and they were living in a, in a non-Christian culture, but their church was in all kinds of, involved in all kinds of stuff it shouldn't be. And the Apostle Paul wrote to the church, and he dealt with all kinds of troubles that they were having, and one of the issues he was dealing with with one of the members in their church was an issue of sexual immorality. And I want us to look at how he wrote to them about this, because I think it's really helpful now, not just about that topic, but about all topics. So open your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. This is a culturally relevant All the Bible is culturally relevant, but this speaks to where we're at right now. And I'm going to read all of chapter 5. It's only 13 verses. Ready? Apostle Paul writing to the church that has um, real big problems going on. He's the apostle and he's correcting them. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not even exist among the Gentiles that someone has his father's wife, and you have become arrogant and have not mourned, instead so that that the one who has done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in my body, meaning he's not there yet, but present in the spirit, have already judged him. Now stop right there, because all you hear is don't judge me, and the people in the church, don't judge me. The apostle Paul says, I've already judged him. We're going to talk about what that looks like. I've already judged him, and I'm not, understand me, I'm, I so much am wrestling with this because you're going to say, you're promoting a gospel of judgment and trying to, trying to play God and say, who's in and out? I'm not trying to say who's in and out. I'm not trying to cause us to be judgmental. We're just looking at, honestly at a culture that's not Christian. How do you have to live? So verse 3, for I on my part, though absent in the body but present in the spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the olive. Now he's making a reference to, to, to Judaism and, and the, the Passover, having leaven and getting rid of the leaven to celebrate the Passover. Clean out the old leaven, which is yeast in the dough, so that you may, you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened, meaning without sin. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not mean at all with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous or the swindlers or with the idolaters, for then you would have to go out of this world. 
But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Remember, he's talking about they are in a pre-Christian culture. We are now living in a post. It was pre-Christian. It became Christianized. Now we're living in a post-Christian culture. And here's what I want us to see. The Apostle Paul held totally different standards for people inside and outside the church. To those inside the church, in this text, he comes across as really harsh. He's dealing with sin in their body. He's trying to protect the church. We'll talk about that. And he says this, cast, I've never said anything like this, cast this man out of the church into Satan's hands so that his sinful nature will be destroyed and he himself will be saved. Right? But you, Paul used, what did he, how did he do? He used the objective standard of Scripture, the right and wrong of Scripture, and from that concluded what to do. He said, look it, we have an objective standard of what is truth. The truth says this is wrong activity in the church. He makes his decision based on objective truth, and he says this man is sinning, and he must be dealt with for two reasons, he gives. First, to ultimately see him restored and saved. Not to condemn him, not to punish him. His discipline is to restore him. And if you read the book of 2 Corinthians, you say in 2 Corinthians, Paul writes and he says, hey, that guy you kicked out, bring him back in so he's not, he's not going too much stress. Come back in so that he can be restored to the church family. He said the discipline worked, now bring him back in. So the first thing he's saying, I want to, save the, I want to see this guy get saved. He's going down a path that will destroy him. We must deal with him because we want him to be saved. So it's the first reason he deals with sin. The second one he says is this, to protect the purity of the rest of the church. Look at verse 6. Don't you realize that even if one person is allowed to go on sinning, soon all will be affected. Paul is both protecting the man who is sinning by not overlooking his sin. It is not kind to overlook people's sin that will lead to destruction. It is not kind. Within the church world, it is not kind to let people go on however they want and just say, well, it's all right with you because our culture says what's good for me is not good for you. No, we have an objective standard. And he's applying that and he's saying, it's not good for this man. He says, this man has his father's wife. He's in relationship. He said, he's in, he's in gross immorality. He says, the Gentiles don't even act this way. He says, deal with this sin. Paul's protecting the man who is sinning by not overlooking his sin so that he can repent and be restored. And Paul is protecting the church by showing that sin is wrong and it must be dealt with so that, so that others don't conclude that it's all right. That's what he's saying. He's saying, listen, we have to deal with this so that the other people in the church don't go, well, if they're doing that, why don't I take my dad's wife? Or whatever the flavor of the day sin is at that time. Paul deals with those who are followers of Jesus by standing on the objective standard of Scripture and making judgments based on it, not his opinion. And friends, that's how we can and should deal with each other in the family of God. Now, I'm not saying we should walk around looking to point out sins. That's not it. Paul was not walking around looking, but when sin rose, 
because the church was guilty of that for generations and it's why the church so often is so careful about talking about it because a lot of you grew up in a condemning church that talked like that and was just looking to point a finger at you. That's not Portview. That's not kingdom. But when sin arises, we can't look the other way. We should. We need to deal with sin when it's necessary. There's places for that. We have procedures for that as a church. When you go through membership, we talk about a covenant we have on how we would biblically deal with conflict and sin issues because we want to do it right. So we should, we should understand that, that we, we deal with each other. This is how we deal with each other in a family. But more so, we use the revealed truth of Scripture to determine what we do and how we should think and how we should act on topics and issues of our day. So we have an objective standard we stand upon. We have the gift of the word of God to guide us. I'm not smart enough to figure out how to navigate this changing culture. But you don't have to lose sleep at night trying to figure it out because we have a gift, the word of God. And it's our objective standard, especially in times when it seems like people don't have a clue what's right and wrong, good or bad. Why? Because they're saying there's no objective standard. God has given us an objective standard, his word. So as Christians, we can, we can and we must use Scripture to make determinations of our interactions with other people within the family of God, right? We've got to look at these and say, okay, Paul says this, even that guy's a so-called brother. He says, somebody says they're a believer, we act with them one way. However, look at what Paul says about interacting with those who aren't followers of Jesus. And this is why I'm so, I'm so cautious. He says, he calls them as outsiders. He's not worried about saying, no, I'm worried about offending people who are in and out. He's just saying, they're outsiders. They're not yet part of the body of Christ. Look at verses 8 through 13 again. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast with the old leaven, not with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or the covetous or the swindlers or the idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or idolater or reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? The answer is rhetorical, yes. But those who are outside, God judges. So it's not saying judgment isn't real and the standards don't matter, but it's saying it's not our place as Christians to make the judgment. It's God's place to make the judgment. Then he goes on finally, and remove the wicked man from among yourselves. He's saying in the church, deal with it. But outside the church, he says, let God be the judge. Two really important things here. First, Paul never gives any indication that he tries to correct the immoral living of those outside the kingdom of God. And it's for a good reason. He does not say here to take out your Bible, stand in a street corner, and convince outsiders, people outside the family of God, that their actions are wrong and immoral. Why? Because he understands that sinners sin. Now, given the opportunity through relationship, Someone who has met Jesus and has been changed by his love could and should lovingly talk to another person who does not yet know Jesus and explain why they've changed and stop why they have, why they've stopped certain actions. You know, I live in Wisconsin. You know how many times I have to explain why I chose to give up drinking? 
You know, my 60-year-old sister, we just buried her two months ago. She literally drank herself to death. She literally drank so much she died in her house alone, surrounded by bottles. I have a good reason to say I choose not to drink. That's why I gave up. I have a right. I have every right in the world to do it, but I chose to give it up. Why? Because it's not good for people. It's not good for me. It's not good for my family. It's not good for my relatives. It's not good for the rest of the world. But I understand people who don't know Jesus, they don't yet, we, he calls them sinners, but meaning they, they're, they're bound by sin, not a derogatory term. Should we look at it? The church made a mistake. We look at it and we go, oh, you rotten sinner. No, 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 no. It's not derogatory. It's saying they're still bound by sin and they don't know any better. As each one of us was before Jesus. We weren't less valuable to the world or to God. It's just that we were bound by sin. And because you're bound by sin, you do not have the clarity to understand the things of God. So Paul says, I'm not going to judge you outside by God's standards. They're still sinners and sinners sin. Now, given the opportunity, we, can, we want to reach out to people who don't know Jesus. We're not telling, we're not condemning them for their actions. We're loving them. It'd be great if God would use our changed lives. When people ask me, why do you stop drinking? I use an opportunity to share what God has done in my life. The day that I was drinking a beer, I don't know, I had no intention of talking about drinking, drinking a beer, and my brother, who is not yet a Christian, he is now, he was going out, it was a Friday night, and he says to me, and we're talking, he's leaving the house, and I go, listen, dummy, don't get drunk and get in a car accident tonight, because he's always drinking excessively. And I had a can of beer in my hand when I said it. And the Lord literally spoke to me as clear as a bell in that moment and said, you hypocrite, you're causing your brother to stumble. And I walked up and I poured it down the drain and I never had one drink since. That was 30 years ago. Now here's the deal. I'm not trying to talk about drinking. I'm, not, it's not, I'm just saying this. He didn't, I, I was wrong. I tried to use a standard that was for me to condemn him and I was wrong. What I'm saying is, he's saying we don't do that. We don't condemn the world based on our standards because Paul is saying they don't get it. It does no good. And if they do conform to your standards, what happens? You turn them into a Pharisee. You turn them into a person who religiously follows rules but has no heart. That's empty, dead religion. We want people to serve Jesus, know Jesus from their heart, and then they choose to do what they want in following Jesus. They follow God's standards. So... Paul doesn't attack non-Christians for immoral behavior because he says it does no good. Everyone without Jesus doesn't need us to preach about their actions. They need a heart, tra- a heart change. They need to be set free from the bonds of sin that every human being was born into in this world because sin has infested every corner. But Jesus came to set us free from that. First, they need to come to Christ. Then they can understand spiritual truths. The second thing, Paul shows us that we will and should rub shoulders because it says, okay, don't judge them. But then he says, but we should still rub shoulders with people outside the family of God who engage in activities that Scripture considers immoral. And this has been the other mistake the church world has made. We say, come out and be separate. And we never, we say, so we live cloistered lives over here because we say we're different than them. Well, we are different, not because we're better. We just understand there's an objective standard that rules our life now. And we choose to submit to it. And it makes our lives infinitely better because we do it. 
But Paul is saying, listen, um, that doesn't mean that you should now stop rubbing shoulders with people who don't know Christ yet and are involved in sin. Look at verse 10 again. I did not mean at all with the that mean at all uh, that Im- with interacting with immoral people of the world, or you would, or with the covenants or the swindlers or the idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. Suzanne and I, in a couple of weeks, are going to take some more time to talk about this in a sermon we're going to do together. Because there are some factors here when I'm talking about rubbing shoulders of the lost that are, we have taken into consideration our children and our grandchildren, that they, we need to act differently with them than we do with us. But regarding you as maturing Christians, we can and must be in relationship with people outside the family of God, even when they act in ways that make you feel uncomfortable. Why? Because how else will they ever know that there is a better way? How else will they ever know that there is truth and his name is Jesus? The name of truth is Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And if we, so if we can't approach them the way we have in culture forever and the way we do towards other believers, we can't approach them with, really with scripture and say, but the Bible says, stop that then how do we do it? We approach them with love. We love people right where they are at. People, we love all people, but people outside the church, we love them right where they're at. And I'd say this, we love them right where they're at. That's one side of the coin. The other side is, and we live openly for Jesus in front of them. We don't compromise our Christianity. We love them and we live very open Christian lives and we talk about how good Jesus is in our lives and if they're interested, we invite them to become part of our lives. Then if and when they would be interested in Jesus and we could explain to them about Jesus and they come to Jesus, then we will help them see what's really right and wrong by explaining God's word to them when they can then embrace the fact that, that God himself, who's changed their heart, has given them a love letter, his scriptures, to give them the best life possible if they'll follow it. So we look at it two different ways. Wasn't the worship team come up this morning? So how do we interact with people? Let's wrap it up. How do we interact with people in this time where Christian thinking is not the norm anymore? Well, first, we stand upon the truth of God's word when dealing with those inside the family of God, and we insist on following God's standards. We say, this is the standard, not because I like it. Matter of fact, there's a lot of, th- there's some things that I go, you know what? I would like to swing the other direction a little bit, but I look at the wisdom of God, and I say, this is what God says is the best way, and I know that God's a lot smarter than me, so I submit to the standards of God from the word of God. But then with dealing with those who do not yet know Jesus, we understand that they we understand that they don't understand. Not because they're less intelligent. It's because until you've been born again, until Jesus, the Spirit of God has come and regenerated you, spiritual things don't make sense to you. They didn't to anybody, anybody, nobody before they met Jesus. So what do we do? We love them where they're at. We live out our Christianity openly as an example of what can be the good and beautiful life that God offers to his people. 
We look for opportunities to help them come to know Jesus as their Savior so they can be changed from the inside out. And then when they meet Jesus, we help them see why living God's way is the best way. How do you navigate this culture? You just understand it's not what it used to be. And we've got to be a little wiser and think about how we interact because we've got to treat different groups differently. Does that make sense? Let's pray together. Father, you know our hearts. And Lord, you know we don't have this thing all figured out. We are living in the midst of a cultural shift and we feel it. And it's, it makes us unstable. We're doing our best to figure it out. And we're going to get things right. We're going to get things wrong. We know that. But thank you for your goodness and your grace and your love. So for today, God, and for these next coming weeks, as we just talk about some real practical issues on navigating a changing culture, God, would you just give us your wisdom? Give our pastoral staff your wisdom. Because we stand up here and we're doing our best to hear your voice and to do our best to help and bring hope. God, we need your wisdom. God, our church family today, all of us, we need your wisdom in interacting with our family. Because when we talk about those who are, as Paul calls, outsiders, for some of us, we understand some of those are the people who live in our very homes. They're the people we love more than anybody else in the world. They're our spouses and our kids. They're our parents and our cousins and uncles, our good friends. And Lord, they didn't ask to be born in a culture that's having such shift. They didn't ask to be born at this certain time, but you knew they would be. And it's your plan. We know this, that every person comes to know you as Savior and Lord. We know that. It's why you came to this earth. You came to this earth, Jesus, to reveal the reality of who you are, God, and to give your life in our place, pay for our sins that we can't pay for, to wipe out our sin debt, wipe it out, break the control of sin in our lives so that now we can experience full life in you. You you fix the problem when we come to you. You fix the sin problem. God, so many of our friends and family haven't experienced that yet. They're living in a culture, Lord, that we look at it and we say, how will they ever understand because culture is just against everything it seems like that's for you but you're greater so right now I pray bring to our minds well, certain people in our circles of influence a spouse a friend, a child, a cousin that you know that they right now something in the stage of life they're in, they're open, maybe for the first time, to hearing about you. God, bring bring their faces to our hearts. Bring their names to our minds. Right now, as we see them, Lord, would you give us wisdom and help us to figure out how we can just love them well where they're at? express the reality of our Christian faith in such a way that they are drawn to you because you're in us. 
God, this week give us opportunities to just love for you, people who don't yet know you. Not to condemn them, not to criticize them, not to judge them, to love them and to reveal your heart because you love them. Just because they're in or out, just because they're they're in the church or outside, you don't love them any less, and we don't want to either. Fill our hearts so that we don't, that we love every person just the way you do. We see you in their eyes. So God, help us with this this week. Churches, we're in prayer. We're just in a private moment. Our eyes are closed. Just not because anything special about that. Just a matter of let's let's give each other a moment. Maybe you're here today, and you're honest with yourself. You're saying you are on the outside of the kingdom of God. Doesn't mean you're less. Doesn't mean you're not as intelligent. It doesn't mean that you're that you're um, you don't you're not wise. But it simply means you know in your heart. You've been living your life where you are really your own God. And if you're honest, you just say, I live my life my way. It's something inside of you right now is saying, there's more. Something inside of you right now is saying, this isn't working out so well. And you're hearing this talk about being in the kingdom of God and you're seeing all the, the good things that we talked about come from kingdom thinking. Justice and mercy and care for the poor and care for the environment. And you're going, I want to be all in with that. But you've not been in with the king yet, with King Jesus. But in your heart right now, you're saying, this is what I want. I want to say yes to Jesus. I'm not sure what that all means, but I want to say yes to Jesus. I want to begin a journey following Him. Living His way. If that's you this day, I promise you this, I'm not going to embarrass you or call you out. I just want to give you a chance to respond. If you say, Pastor Mark, I want to say yes to Jesus today. I want you just to slip up your hand. When I see you, I'm going to just tell you to put your hand down. We're just all going to pray together. So just right now, just slip it up. I promise I'm not going to embarrass you. I just sense that, that you're saying, I need to do that today. Somebody's saying, I need to do that. All right. Thank you, Jesus. So, Father, you know our hearts. You know, Jesus, that, that you, we know that you love us so much that you gave us. You gave your life for us. And not only that, gave us a way to live in shifting culture that is stable and is solid and is dependable. So Lord, for every person in this place today, I pray that as we walk out of this room, we would walk looking to your direction. We'd walk out trusting in you and we'd walk out, Lord, saying, now who around us can I just love because God loves them. No matter what their life looks like, just love them let them see that you love them because of Jesus. So help us, Lord.